For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Pago Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two, main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm your host, Jake Robbins. Well, Martians, it's spring, and everyone knows that can only mean one thing. It's time for the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference. Okay, so maybe that means more than one thing to you, but if you're a big geek like me, you really look forward to this time of year. LPSC is the biggest planetary science conference in the world, and I look forward to it every year as a way to keep tabs on what's happening in Mars science and the missions exploring Mars today. Now, having a conference in March during a global pandemic means two things. First, last year it meant that the timing could not have been worse. Planners made a tough call at the beginning of March 2020 to cancel the event as it became clear that COVID-19 was going to be a problem. It was the right move. Just a couple of weeks later, the full lockdowns began. But it also meant that there just wasn't enough time to pivot to an online event, and we ended up going without LPSE in 2020. Now, luckily, we were able to put together some virtual audio-only podcast versions of the poster sessions in its wake last year, two episodes I definitely recommend you check out. Now, the other thing about having a conference in March means that this year, in 2021, LPSC goes into a virtual version, having had an entire year to get ready. And so, with much excitement, I signed up for the virtual LPSC and eagerly logged in at the beginning of the week to fill my brain with science once again. We caught up with rovers and landers, covered some press releases, heard from NASA, and made some new friends. So, let's dive in. Getting updates on the ongoing surface missions of our favorite robotic explorers always is a highlight for me at LPSC, and this year was no exception. And while NASA's twoest new missions, InSight and Perseverance, got a lot of limelight, Curiosity's results did not disappoint either. Curiosity has spent more than the last two years exploring an area in Gale Crater called Glen Torridon. It's a clay-rich area nestled between the higher Vera Rubin Ridge and Greenhue Pediment. We previewed this phase of the mission in March 2019 with Kristen Bennett back in episode 55. We're showing up at this area that from orbit, it has some really strong signatures uh, that show clay minerals. And so that's one of the reasons why we went to this place, uh, to Gale Crater in general, is just to go look for these clay minerals that that indicate water. And so that's why... This is such a big deal as we're coming off of this ridge unit, Vera Rubin Ridge, and starting to, to come into this other place that uh, from orbit looks different than what we've been seeing so far. Glen Torridon was remarkable because of the presence of these tiny round pebbles everywhere. This smooth unit that we're driving in is just really flat with all of these little pebbles. And that looks smooth from... Uh, orbit because the pebbles are below the resolution of high rise and so it looks like a smooth flat surface and it's just made up of all of these pebbles that 
are really easy to drive on, apparently. Fast forward to now, and Glenn Torridon is behind us, but the interpretations of the data are happening in full force. And one scientist has been looking very closely at these pebbles. Uh, Hi, my name is Sabrina Khan. I'm an undergraduate senior at MIT studying planetary science and aerospace engineering. Um, And my research over the last year or so has focused on Martian sedimentology and geomorphology. Sabrina's work involved studying these pebbles, or clasts as they're called, in pretty great detail. You know, there are a few ways I guess you can go about looking at the pebbles in Glentoridon, but the probably most straightforward thing you can do is just to measure all of the class um, that we have images of from the rover. Um, And, you know, it's it's a very time-consuming task. Uh, Automating it, I think, is a little difficult because, you know, uh, the class are very similar tones. Um, They're really small. They're, you know, on the order of millimeter scale. Uh, They're embedded in the soil, and sometimes they're just so densely packed, you know, that they're sitting next to one another and on top of one another. Um, So ultimately, what you need to do is uh, trace each pebble individually until you have a large enough sample set uh, to begin doing some meaningful analysis. Um, But, you know, once you have that sample set, you can start teasing out some relationships between the class um, and their measurements, you know, are some of them rounder than the others, perhaps some of them are flatter or have rougher textures. Um, and if you're able to identify enough trends, then you can establish uh, what's what we call a class type uh, in this piece, at least, uh, which is, you know, uh, it's a type that has a particular set of characteristics that make it unique from the rest. And that's kind of our starting point for, for this analysis. Studying clasts like this has a history in Mars exploration, and Sabrina leveraged a couple different instruments on Curiosity to get it done. So we use a combination of different cameras because uh, looking at class can be a little difficult because it's not generally the focus of the analysis. Um, Normally, you're looking at bedrock, which tends to be the more reliable source of information about a region. Um, But what's really cool is that... um, in, uh, for the Spirit and Opportunity rovers, uh, there was a class analysis campaign. And so the, the person who did that, Eileen Yingst, kind of brought that the spirit of that work to um, Curiosity. And so she had what's called what she called a class analysis campaign using the MassCam camera. Um, so MassCam, which is the, the two cameras that are sitting on top of the, I guess, head of the MSL Curiosity rover, um, they kind of orient themselves into a specific position um, at a, about the same time of day, you know, around noon or, or afternoon on Mars. And they look down at the ground and take an image of, of the class. Um, and because it's the, there's so much consistency across all of the images, you can actually make some good consistent measurements and observations from them. Um, but we also do use another camera called Marty, which sits uh, right at the bottom of the rover, kind of in the belly of the rover and looks directly down. Um, the resolution tends to be a little bit worse because it's a navigational camera, but we can still use that because it looks directly down at the at the pebbles. Marty wasn't originally a science instrument at all. It stands for Mars Descent Imager, and it took photos from the air as Curiosity descended to the ground on landing day way back in 2012. Located on the belly of the rover, it now faces the ground underneath it. Its focal length isn't ideal for photographing the rocks below, but scientists have found a way to make it work. And and what's actually really interesting about Marty is that um, after it landed, 
uh, they were able to calibrate it so that you could actually use it to take better, more accurate uh, images with you know higher resolution or um, I guess higher, uh, I don't want to say resolution, but um, uh, I guess you could <laughs> do the analysis that was a little more accurate and take better measurements from that data. Uh, so that, yeah, it is a really cool camera in that way. So after all this work measuring pebbles, what makes one different from the other? So a lot of the differences tend to be in the shape and size. You know, we see that some class might be 25 millimeters and others will be two to 10 millimeters. Um, so that that's one of the bigger differences that we see and that um, kind of was important later on um, when we were doing this work. Um, but another one of the big ones is uh, angularity and roundness. Um, those That's a really strong indicator of erosion and erosion rates. Uh, so if you're having, if it's, you know, a river environment or if you're in a a, an environment with a lot of wind abrasion, then if you start off with an angular clasp over time, it's going to become less and less angular and more and more round. So that was a, something that we started off by looking at and seeing, well, okay, which class have really high angularity um, and what are some other characteristics associated with them? And what class have really low angularity and what class tend to be associated with those. And we found that there were some class that were in specific locations around Glen Torridon that were kind of nice and blocky um, and so somewhat of a high angularity uh, and they were very smooth uh, and other class which were um, really, really tiny and they were really nicely rounded, really spherical. Um, and those were in kind of different areas in Glen Torridon. Uh, and so those, th those kinds of distributional differences were important in kind of teasing out uh, our understanding of what, have, what the kinds of erosion that the region faced. Having a big picture of the different sizes and shapes of pebbles across the region gives Sabrina a look into Glen Torridon's past. Yeah, so so what was really cool is that um, after we kind of identified these different class types, we saw that if you map them out on the whole, um, you know, region of Glen Torridon, you see that some class types only appear in the northern section of Glen Torridon, for example, and some class types only appear in the southern half of Glen Torridon. Um, and that observation alone is pretty useful because it tells us that, um, you know, however these classes were laid down, it was happening in these kind of localized patches. Um, and if you kind of look at these other types of class that we were looking at, um, one of which has these lamination features and another which is pitted and has some groove surfaces, um, those all appear near ridges and hills that cross the landscape. Um, and so the, the laminated features we suspect come from a particular unit in of rock in Glen Torridon called the Knockfrail Hill unit, which caps a lot of the ridges. So it kind of just sits on top of these ridges. Um, and that relationship alone kind of tells us that a lot of these class are probably slowly breaking off the bedrock and sliding down into uh, the basin. But the class that we're suspecting, you know, if it's going to break off bedrock, it's probably going to be jagged, more angular, which is not what we see on the whole. Um, so the, that mechanism alone doesn't really explain why so many of the class that we're seeing are really smooth and well-rounded. And for that, we can look at those pitted class, which we see are also common near the regions, uh, near the ridges and the hills. Um, and those pitted surfaces tend to form from wind abrasion. 
which acts over time to polish and smooth out the rock. Uh, so you can imagine how over thousands of years, those winds and even in the thin atmospheres on Mars can wear a large jagged class down to a small rounded one. Um, so ultimately that's what we believe is happening in Glen Torrid. And we're seeing these large jagged class breaking off from the bedrock near those ridges, sliding down the ridges, and then slowly being worn down by the wind. So what does this mean for Mars science? What can Sabrina do next with these results? Right, so I kind of touched on how we can um, use uh, features like angularity to um, uncover some things like erosional rates. Um, and that's kind of where this, this study is going. Um, what we'd want to do is to, to look at those different class and say, okay, well, we see there's differences in distribution. Perhaps on the top of a ridge, we see these really jagged class and at the bottom, we see really smooth ones. How long does it take for us to go from a jagged class to a smooth one? And if we can figure that out, we can figure out perhaps what the paleoenvironmental conditions were, you know, ancient Mars, what were the wind speeds like that were allowed these class to form. Um, so that's really what we're trying to touch on is how can we reconstruct these ancient environments on Mars and understand Glentorton a little bit better. Surface missions aren't the only ones getting attention at LPSC. Mars orbiters do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to science, especially at Mars's poles, where we are not yet able to explore in great detail on the ground. Another scientist we met is doing some really interesting work on the North Polar Layer Deposit. My name is Alyssa Pascuzo, and I am a six-year PhD student at Brown University working with Jack Mustard. And while Sabrina was looking at very small things, the North Polar cap on Mars is, well, a very big thing. It's, yeah, yeah actually, I made some really cool to scale figures for like how big the cap is area-wise. And like it covers all of Texas, basically, um, or a third of Greenland. And in terms of like thickness, it's two kilometers thick, which I'm trying to like kind of think of that visually, like, like two kilometers high. The Empire State Building is like 400-ish meters, so. Mars's North Polar Layer Deposit is a striking feature visually, comprised of layers upon layers of ice and dust. I get mesmerized looking at the layers all the time. It also makes me want to eat some some like layered cake, but <laughs> um, the layers are, I, I don't want to say alternating, but it looks like they kind of alternate between like dark-toned and light-toned ice-rich layers and the dark-toned layers uh, have a lot of dust in them. And the main main interest that draws people in is that basically these exposures of these these layer this layered sequence is like a it's like having an ice core from Earth, but but way more exaggerated, I guess you can think. And like since we can't get ice cores on Mars, the best thing we can use is like these these cutouts into the into the ice cap, like a slice in a cake. We're able to see these dusty layers. These layers are tremendously useful for helping us understand what's happening on Mars today. It, it goes back to climate because uh, as just like how Earth has a varying climate and as people probably you may have heard on Mars, like four billion years ago, it might have been warm and wet or cold and wet on Mars. Um, 
I'm much more interested in like how climate has changed more recently on Mars, because before we jump way back in time, we kind of need to understand how Mars's climate changes over smaller timescales and probably a bit more recently, just to understand the physics and processes a bit more. But yeah, so like there was times at the poles when ice is not stable. And so you're getting a lot of ice is leaving the polar system and you're just kind of getting dust deposition. And then there's times where dust, where ice is stable. And so you're getting a lot of ice deposition and that's how you get that. That's how we think you get this kind of what looks like alternating layers of light and dark toneness. Alyssa's work is looking really closely at these layers, specifically the dust rich ones. It turns out that they sort of stick out of the side of the cap. I think I made, I made the analogy in my talk, um, like, like like an Oreo, how you have like a soft center and like the hard cookie crust. That's kind of what these these layers kind of look like if you cut like a, a stack of Oreos together and cut them on like an angle. Um, and then if you ate away, I guess, at the <laughs> at the inner part of the of the Oreo, that's all soft and squishy. Like many good science stories, this work started as a different project altogether. Alyssa and her team were originally looking to model sublimation rates of ice, the rates at which the ice was changing from solid to gas. But it became clear that they would first need to better understand these layers and why the dusty ones were protruding. And so they got to work. Past work has looked like has used topographic data to look at how these layers protrude. And that that means just being like if you're walking up that wall or that that slope, some of the layers will kind of be a hill and then kind of some of them will kind of dip in and then the next one will be a hill. Um, and we can measure how much a layer is sticking out using the, the, this, this topographic data. So I'm using high-rise data or high-rise digital terrain models. So it's like super high resolution um, uh, topographic data. It's like one meter per pixel resolution. And the beginning of my work was to uh, use like the surrounding layers that are like dips in the topography to, to get at a measurement of how much a layer is sticking out. The idea is, is that the layers that stick out have some erosional resistance to them or like they are, they are harder for some reason to get rid of over time than these icier layers that, that are adjacent to them. And trying to figure out what's the control on that. Like, why aren't they eroding away? Because when you think about it, if you're wearing like a dark t-shirt or something, you, you should get warm. So if, if you're a dusty layer, you should get warm and sublimate more. That's kind of like the theory going into it. So you would imagine these dusty layers should actually be recessed on the wall, not, not protruding out. And so the goal of the work that I presented at the conference was trying to trying to figure out a, a model or like a, a schematic process that that would that make sense uh, in in this in this grand scheme of like okay we have these measurements how come we can't model what these measurements show? What Alyssa found was really fascinating. Our initial results so so far are that the dust content or the dust the dust on the surface like dust cover that already is existing is the biggest driver in how much sublimation you can you can get of ice or how much ice you can get rid of off, off of the wall. We also were testing topographies, so these cutouts, some of these cutouts are uh, these exposures are at, on on steeper slopes, some of them are on shallower slopes, some of them face a different direction, like east versus west. So that means that you're getting a different amount of sun exposure uh, on, on these on these walls. And so we were trying to see which which factor, like dust content or topography, 
is like is lending more to this surface process and we found that dust is pro- is is by far the biggest control and as we march back in time we see that when mars is during periods of inst- instable ice periods at the poles meaning you're getting more sun directly at the poles that's when you're having the most sublimation and that's where you're having this du- this dust content really mattering and the the general kind of process we we kind of came up with at, at the end to explain why these layers protrude is that you are getting actually more sublimation of these layers occurring at first. So they are sublimating away faster than the ice-rich layers. But as you sublimate the ice away, you build up dust. And as you build up more dust, you can think of like a thermos. If your thermos or if your bottle is thin, then your water's going to heat up inside. Um, but if your thermos is thick enough, you're going to insulate it. So if you have a thick enough dust cover, you're going to protect the layer. And so that we figured out a model for that. It's weird processes like this that made me fall in love with Mars polar science. The interactions of water ice and CO2 and sunlight and dust make for some really, really interesting evidence. And it's all held in a pretty tenuous balance. Just one thing can set it off. The other big thing that we found was in order to get the topography we see, we need some sort of pre-existing dust on the surface, especially for the ice ice rich layers, because ice rich layers are so bright that under even instable ice periods, bright ice is stable, more or less. Like it doesn't sublimate enough, even in the instable times. I asked Alyssa what she planned on doing next with these data. Definitely taking this further, there's way more to do. Um, this project is only, like I said, it's like one part of a project and that project is a part of a bigger project. So, and like, yeah, so it, it all ties back to the work that I'm doing and trying to understand the dust cycle. Cause I'm not, I'm not a modeler, but I am a person who observes and makes interpretations. I, I use measurements and data um, and try to ha- get data and constraints for modelers. Hopefully that's kind of my goal and trying to understand the dust cycle and how the, how the dust is affecting ice on the surface. So we can better understand like how, how dust is, is affecting the volatile cycle through time. For this work, uh, the next steps are probably doing other locations because I have some locations that are completely dust covered, whereas this location, half of it is dust covered and half of it is not. And the stuff that I presented actually was only on stuff that was on the dust free side. I didn't even like talk about dust blankets or anything, but dust blankets are like pervasive on the cap. And so that's kind of like the next step is to get more nitty gritty in detail with like, okay, we have these blankets of dust now, what are they doing? It's We Martians' fifth birthday and we're celebrating. The season five mission patch is here. Once again, showcasing the art of illustrator Beth Kerner, this patch features all three Mars missions that launched in 2020, Hope, Tianwen-1, and Perseverance. You can get these four-inch sew-on mission patches at our shop for just 17 US dollars with free shipping anywhere on Earth. Delivery to Mars will be extra though. Support two content creators today at shop.wemartians.com. With so many planetary scientists and media all in the same place, 
LPSC ends up being a great venue to release big science results, and virtual LPSC was no exception. My name is Eva Scheller, or Eva L. Scheller, and I'm a PhD candidate at Caltech. Eva and her team held a press conference at LPSC for some results exploring an age-old question on Mars. Where did all the water go? And it's an important question. People have wanted to understand the history of water on Mars for a long time. And you, you've seen numerous like headlines come out of NASA, I think, of like, we found water on Mars, we found water on Mars. And really what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand what Mars's past environments and past climate was like, because water is a really good sort of tracker for us to understand what we call planetary habitability, which is like, it has like a scientific de- definition, but really what it means is like an environment's um, capability to sustain organisms. And we always found that liquid water is a very important like component to life on Earth because it provides this solvent that a lot of or- organisms need. It also sort of provides a clue as to, you know, physical chemical conditions. So like climatic conditions, temperature conditions, and pressure conditions that are conducive for life to um, live and, you know, exist on Earth. So that's why we're always like tracking how much um, water is there at what point in time, because there's a way for us to sort of sort of unveil whether Mars in its past wasn't really this dry desert planet that we see today, but more like a like a Earth-type planet where we think that it could have been habitable. Water loss on Mars is a problem we've been tackling for a very long time. The MAVEN spacecraft, for example, has been tracking hydrogen loss directly into space. But this is not a single solution issue. I think that there's been two parallel tracks in Mars research. So we've had sort of, or maybe three parallel tracks, actually. So we've had the atmospheric scientists who focus a lot on like the structure of the atmosphere and like loss of hydrogen at the um, top of the axis uh, atmosphere that we call the exobase. Um, and then we've had scientists who look more at the composition of, you know, the rocks on Mars. So either through satellites or rovers. And over the past like 20 years, they discovered that there's like a lot of water actually locked within the, the rocks that we see on the Martian surface. So we've seen this for numerous missions, like um, all the way back to like Odyssey, measuring water contents of the crust, um, the Mars, Recon- Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, the Mars Express, we saw this with Curiosity, measurements of all these different um ancient crustal components that have a lot of water in, inside of them. And so um, there's like sort of been these two parallel tracks. Uh, and I think what we do in this study is kind of try to combine them in, together into like a single uh, or like a model that sort of thinks of Mars as a, it's a global system where all of these components are important. Eva's work focuses on this idea of water locked away inside of rocks and something called hydrated minerals. We've known this is happening for a long time on Mars, but it has been a really long process to piece together data sets from many different Mars missions in order to actually quantify this water. You know, if we're doing geology on Earth and we want to like understand how much water is in in the crust, we can like very quickly narrow down like these are the experiments we want to do. Let's go in the lab and do them. It's just like if you do that for Mars, it takes like. 20 years to develop the experiment to actually happen. 
So we started off by seeing like globally all these signatures of water and also measuring um, like pretty well the water content of the crust. But we wanted to understand, you know, there are different components that could be controlling what this uh, water is um like what is this water that we're measuring, right? And so that's where we wanted really detailed analyses that we got with, for example, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that could um, measure in measures in like a, its pixel sizes, like 18 by 18 meters. So for Mars, that's fairly good. And we could actually see, okay, this water is actually locked within a lot of like different, what we call hydrated minerals. So the, the common one that I talk about when I say hydrated minerals is clay, because a lot of people understand what clay is and it's actually the dominant water bearing mineral on Mars. Um, so we got that really good like resolution and then we got even better resolution when the Curiosity rover went there and also measured water contents like really detailed in like different rock samples with um, actually two of its instruments. So uh, the first one was the sam sample analysis at Mars instrument that could like basically take a rock and like heat it and let the water out and measure how much water was in a rock. Um, and it could actually also be done spectroscopically for this other method um, on the ChemCam. And uh, yeah, so it's like, it's basically, it's been building up different resolutions to the data set, if you can imagine that. So we feel like it's not enough to just get this global map of water. We want to understand where is this water? So that's the next step, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And then we want to see, okay, what is it like on the ground that's ground truthed? And that's Curiosity Rover. And then now we're at this point. And so what did Eva and her team learn? How much water is there trapped in these Martian rocks? Yeah, so there is there is quite a possible range of like one order of magnitude. So we calculate that um, depend, like depending on, so if you look at all these data sets and you integrate them, um, there's a range in what the water weight percentages are in different parts of the crust. So they might range anywhere from uh, 0.5 weight percent water to like e even all the way up to maybe six weight percent water. And so um, if you you know take that weight percent and you also calculate approximately sort of the vertical structure of how you think that uh, water is distributed, then you can, you know, calculate a volume of water, if you can imagine that. And so um, within the different ranges of this, like, 0.5 to, we in our study, we say, okay, let's be conservative and say, okay, maximum maybe three weight percent of water um, is based on, like, what the Curiosity rover has found. Uh, and, you know, we also vary what the potential depths are compared to what we've found with our orbiters because the orbiters find this like depth of the water in the crust to be between five to 10 kilometers. <clears throat> then you get a possible range of 100 to 1,000 uh, meter global equivalent layer. So global equivalent layer means if you covered the whole surface of Mars with one meter uh, thick layer of water, that would be one. Uh, meter global equivalent layer. So it's 100 to 1,000. And <laughs> I've calculated that a 1,000 meter global equivalent layer is the same as half of an Atlantic Ocean for the, for the listeners who want to understand what does that mean. So that's a lot of water. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, because I mean, if you, you know, you measure rock and it's, you know, say there's water in this rock, but when you accumulate the whole crust and think about how much water is in each part it ends up being quite a lot and it's the same like thing that when people learn that there's actually more water in the mantle 
on Earth than in in like our oceans combined, it boggles people's mind. But for geologists, it's actually quite um, natural because like all rocks contain um, some amount of water. Eva's results can be used in a number of different ways, and she's got some of her own ideas on what she'd like to do with these data next. You know, part of the reason that we're working on this question, or I guess like uh, as, as a combination of, you know, my different interests in Martian research, we're also working on the Perseverance rover. And the amazing thing about the Perseverance rover that I'm very excited about that doesn't get a lot of uh, attention actually, because it requires for us to drive outside of the Jesso crater, which is like the main landing site with the lake and all the fun stuff. But if you drive outside of the crater, you will actually access this very, very ancient crust. So it's 4 billion years old. And that's like, this a major crust that contains a lot of these water bearing minerals and has a pretty high water content from what we can see from orbit. And it's always been a great mystery of like, you know, what formed those water-bearing minerals. And ultimately, in a model like mine, once you understand that mechanism, you understand the full set of the complex reactions um, that allow the crust to sequester water. Because when I say sequestering water, I don't mean it just like the crust just sucks the water in like a sponge. I actually mean there's a set of really complex chemical reactions when rock and water interact with each other that happen for you to form these water bank minerals. And so with the Perseverance rover, we'll actually be able to study this um, in the field for the very first time with a rover. So that's super exciting to me. And so that will really help us um, put better constraints on some of these bounds that I've talked about in the model. Um, and the very interesting thing, which is sort of the next step for me in my re personal research is that um, there is potentially also an effect on the climate that sequestering all of this water uh, actually has um, that I want to investigate further, yeah. Another year, another LPSC behind us. Like many things in our lives these days, it was a little bit different, but overall I was really happy with it. There's no way to make it perfect, but I think that there were some positive changes in this virtual format, and there may even be some good lessons to take into next year when it returns in person. I got to connect with some old friends, see some great science, and rekindle some of that feeling of community. It was also great to catch up with the robotic missions at Mars. If you'd like to hear more about the Perseverance rover, consider becoming a patron because I actually posted daily updates from this conference in the bonus audio feed. And if you're wondering where the Insight content is, don't worry, we have some dedicated episodes coming up soon to go over the results, which are still making that last leg of the publication process. And that's a wrap on LPSC 2021. So special thanks to Sabrina, Alyssa, and Eva for sharing their work with us today. I look forward to more from them in the future and their science. If you haven't checked out our shop lately, I wanted to just drop a quick reminder to take a look. I've been working hard to get a lot of new designs in there this year. Now that I have more time to devote to the show, there are some cool shirts, stickers, mission patches, and more I think you'll like. Have a peek at shop.wemartians.com. All right, have a great week and at Aries. We Martians is an independent, listener-funded podcast created by me, Jake Robbins, in Vancouver, British Columbia. 
You can reach us at info at wemartians.com or on Twitter at we underscore Martians. We'll be right back.